Welcome to worship with Dawson Memorial Baptist Church. At Dawson, we seek to be found faithful as God's people as we become and help others become faithful servants of Jesus Christ. Now join us as we worship God through the teaching of His Word in today's message. As we continue to worship this morning, I'm going to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 9 this morning. If you're new to Dawson, we are journeying through the life of David in 1 and 2 Samuel. We come now to 2 Samuel chapter 9. What, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when I say the word grace? For, for some of you this morning, uh, the first thing that might come to your mind is being gathered around a Thanksgiving table. And the matriarch of the family, patriarch of the family calls upon someone to return grace before the meal. Maybe you have a granddaughter, a grand. A, a, a daughter who is a ballerina, and one time you heard in the audience someone describe as you were watching her glide sort of effortlessly across the stage. She's such a graceful ballerina. Rosalind Carter, the widow or the the, who, the wife of former President Jimmy Carter passed away a few weeks ago, and the tributes came pouring in from journalists and historians. And one of the words that oftentimes was associated with her and you saw was that she, she combined strength and grace together. I mean, same word, grace, used to describe a prayer. Same word, used grace to describe uh, effortless coordination and skill or even dignity. That, that same word is used to describe all of those expressions of life. But here we are on Sunday morning, sitting in pews. And I have a feeling that the, when I say, what do you think of when you think of grace? It very well may be that the soundtrack of the Christian faith comes to your mind in one of the greatest hits of the hymns that we continue to sing are the words of John Newton, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. This is at the heart of what grace is, isn't it? I mean, yes, grace can mean a multiplicity of things, but when we gather to worship, we're talking about God's unmerited favor. That the gift of salvation that is given to us, not because we can earn it or we deserve it or we sought after it, it's that God's grace captures our hearts. This is an amazing grace. That we're dead, but now we are alive. We were blind, but now we see. We were lost, but now we are found. This is grace. And in 2 Samuel chapter 9, in an out-of-the-way, unexpected place, you're going to discover one of the most beautiful portraits of grace in all of the Bible. It comes through a character whose name seems a little hard to pronounce at first glance. We hear the story of Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Here's the word of the Lord. David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. 
The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Melul, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Emilio, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This comes out of left field, doesn't it? I mean, what precedes 2 Samuel chapter 9, obviously, is chapter 8, but the details of chapter 8 are bloody. It's a battlefield. We've got a panoramic cinematic scope on the lens of David's story. He's going to battle is what he's doing. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, he's going to battle against the Philistines and the Moabites and the Edomites. We flip one chapter over and we move from this wide panoramic screen to this close-up shot of David, sort of pensive, pondering a a previous uh, uh, covenant that he has made with this person named Jonathan here. And he's going to show kindness. You see that in verse 1. Look in your Bible. You see it in verse 3. You see it in verse 7. That word kindness is a word in the original language of the Hebrew is a, is a powerful word. It's a word that defies just sort of easy one-to-one translation. So sometimes you'll see it read as covenant love, mercy, grace, kindness. All of that you see in that word there. And David is looking for someone of the house of Saul. His best friend, Jonathan's dad, was Saul. And so he's longing and looking for one to show that kind of covenant love too, kind of grace and mercy too. And so he begins to inquire. Now, why is he inquiring? Why is he doing it at this time? We don't know. But why he's inquiring of this, we do know. It goes all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 20. And it's as if in this moment, David recalls a conversation that he had with his best friend, Jonathan, Saul's son, the first king of Israel, you see it on the screen. If I'm still alive, Jonathan says, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Now, Jonathan is having a conversation with David. Well, Jonathan's still alive, obviously. And he knows that the custom of the land in that ancient Near Eastern world is when a king would come to, to preside over the region, that the king would oftentimes uh, would, would eliminate any threats to his regime and to his reign. And so oftentimes the previous family members of the previous king would lose their life. Now, this was a common practice. And so what Jonathan is saying is, is I know that you're God's beloved. I know that God has anointed you. I know that you will be the next king. Will you show mercy to me if I am still alive? 
And will you show mercy to my family if I'm still alive? David recalls this conversation. He recalls this covenant, and he begins to search in all of his reign for, for one of Saul's sons, one of Saul's descendants. None of his men in the palace could recall who that was. And so they get one of Saul's servants, Ziba. They ask one of Saul's servants, Ziba, do you, do you know if any of Saul's descendants are still around? And verse 3, look at verse 3 with me. He recalls, yes, there's a son of Jonathan who is crippled in his feet. Ziba doesn't even utter the name of Mephibosheth when he first brings him up. What he does is he defines him, confines him. He is nameless. All of his disability and his crippled nature is what comes to Ziba's mind here. Now, in verse 6, we're going to get the name of this person, Mephibosheth. And it's not the first time that you've come across this name. It's a sad story. And if you blink as you're walking through 2 Samuel, you'll miss the story. In an out-of-the-way, tucked-out-of-the-way place in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, you meet Mephibosheth when he's five years old. And when he's five years old, he hears the news that his grandfather Saul is dead in battle. He hears the news that his dad, Jonathan, is dead in battle. And there is a nurse, a caregiver that swoops in to protect him. And they flee. And in her haste, we don't know the details, but as she stumbles, the next thing that we hear in between the words of the pages in 2 Samuel 4 is we hear the sound of a crack. And what happened, how it happened, we don't know all the details, but that it happened, we do know, and that it happened would forever alter Mephibosheth's future. I mean, there wasn't a, you know this, I mean, there wasn't an urgent care center that they could go to to reset whatever is broken in this moment. There's no orthopedic surgeon that is on call. He is forever maimed. And in that day, to be disabled is to be ostracized. In that day, to be disabled is to be on the outskirts. And we see it where he resides. Do you see that in verse 4? Where he is living is low to bar. Literally in the Hebrew language, it can be translated, no pasture land. He's living in the country. He's living in the remote, isolated, desolate place. He's off the grid. AT&T doesn't have internet out there. You can't even get Comcast. You've got to get HughesNet where he's living right here. He is in the out. It's as if he is off the grid in a witness protection program. And one day, out of the blue, he hears the knock at the door, and there is an invitation to the king's palace. And he does not immediately think, This is my lucky day. You know what he thinks? He thinks this is his death sentence. He thinks, okay, finally David has, has reigned in all of the threats and finally it's come to me that I'm going to meet my end at King David's hand here. And so when he shows up in the palace in verse 6, he falls on his face and he pays homage to the king and the words that we hear out of the lips of David are what? Do not fear. Do not fear. 
I will show you kindness for the sake of Jonathan. The covenant that I made with your father now will be instituted to you. Verse 7, David promises him three things. Protection, do not fear, he tells him. Provision, you can eat at my table, he tells him. And ultimately, a new position, he will be treated like one of David's own sons. And just in case you missed this, at the end of verse 13, he's got a new position, he's got provision, and he's got protection, but the author of 2 Samuel still wants you to know now he was lame in both feet. I mean, everything has changed, but David can't heal him. Everything has changed, but he was still lame in both feet. And I want you to see that with just a declaration from David's mouth, a sentence from his mouth that he utters, he brings in Mephibosheth out from the barrenness of the no pasture land into the blessing of the palace. And he does that through his mercy and grace. He does that because he as the king has the ability to extend that kind of invitation. And Mephibosheth didn't earn this. He didn't even go looking for this. And it feels odd. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've received accolades for accomplishments that you did not make yourself. I don't know if you've ever received rewards for something that you did not do. Do you know how odd it feels to be, have, have that kind of blessing bestowed upon you when you realize just how unworthy you are? A few years back, I parked at the Green Springs entrance of the Lakeshore Trail. I was running one morning. I realized really early on that there were people lining the Lakeshore Trail. I realized that I had entered into a race is what I had entered into. <laughs> And I started, it was a down and back. The race started at the target side of the Green Springs Trail, sort of in the old Brookwood Mall, big parking lot over there. That's where they had set up the start. And so everybody's running toward me. I start the race. And by the way that I started the race, I was winning the race. (laughs) So I wasn't just in the race. People, and I kind of felt it. I mean, people were, they were just cheering me on. They didn't have race bibs. They had these little things that you put on your feet right there to mark your time here. And so I was just one of the racers and everybody was going, wow, way to go, way to go. I was looking behind everybody. I'm like, I am faster than all these people right here. (laughs) And I get to the end of the race and I realize that it was the Church of the Highlands 10K that I I have a record time for, just to let you know. When I get to the end of it, they're offering me food. They're they're trying to give me a medal. And of course, I took the medal and took the food. No, I didn't. I turned around and it was a unique experience because I was winning the race going one way and I was at the end of the race going back the other way. But I don't want you to miss this. Mephibosheth, he is given what he cannot earn. And he receives what he doesn't sign up for and didn't go looking for. He gets an invitation to sit at the table of the king. He receives the estate of the king and the inheritance of the king. And in that day, to be crippled, to be disabled, would be you would be left to beg at the fringes of society. And so just imagine for a moment what it was like to move from the no pasture land into the palace 
And to have Amnon, one of David's sons at the table, who's clever and witty, and Absalom is at the table, long flowing hair. He's sort of a model at the table. And you have Tamar, who's a daughter, who's beautiful. You have Solomon, who's poised and who has a a sense where he's longing for wisdom. And all of the sons and daughters are seated at the table. And then you hear uh, echoing in the chambers of the hall, a clump. Clump, clump. As Mephibosheth hobbles his way down those long halls and takes his seat at the king's table here. And it's as if the tablecloth of grace covers his disabled feet. And it's a beautiful story. It's a familiar story. You know why? Because it is your story. It's my story. Oh, it's a story that is strange and isolated with a unique name, but I want you to see in the pages of Scripture that that you know what it is to be crippled by sin. That we know what it is to be crippled by disbelief. We know what it is for our flesh. As we are dead in our sins, and the King of kings and the Lord of lords shows us and lavishes upon us His kindness, His grace, He offers us what we cannot earn, what we cannot merit. It isn't that Mephibosheth shows up at the door and knocks and says, David, how about you do for me what I can't do for myself? No, it is David that seeks after Mephibosheth. It is David that comes to him in the words of Malcolm Muggeridge, a British journalist who became a follower of Christ decades ago. As he describes God's love, he described it as the great hound of heaven that chased after me and captured me while I was dead in my sin. And you know this about David. Not all of you have been journeying with us, but one thing that we know about David is David was not a perfect king. But it's in this snapshot that we see how David would be called a man after God's own heart. It's in this snapshot how we can see through David to a, to a greater king, Jesus himself, who brings through his grace and his love honor out of shame. It's a foreshadowing, is it not, of, of Jesus' love that comes to the broken and it comes to those of us that are in the sanctuary that know shame by the circumstances of our life that slap us in the face or the self-inflicted wounds of our own choices. We know what it is to sit at the table of a God who invites us by his grace and there's room at the table. Some of you have really big families and you're still carrying on traditions where you want everyone under the same roof at Thanksgiving. But one of the things that you have to do is you have to divide and multiply the opportunities for people to eat in different rooms right there because there's not a table or a room big enough to get all of the cousins around the table and all the aunts and the uncles and the sons and the daughters. But there is a table that is before us that is in the banquet hall of heaven itself that is large enough for all of us who know what it is to be on the outskirts of life and ostracized by life, the broken down and the down and out, the oppressed and the distressed, the pious and pharisaical. All are able to find a place at his table. Thanksgiving is the time to catch up on streaming movies or 
shows. Maybe you have some time to catch something. We didn't get to do that as much this Thanksgiving season, but right before we left for Thanksgiving one night, I was watching one of my favorite shows. It was on the SEC network. It's called True South. I doubt it's a show that hundreds of you know about here. It's put on by John T. Edge and the executive producers, Wright Thompson, a sports journalist. John T. Edge is the head of the Southern Foodways Alliance is based out of Ole Miss. And they tell the story of the South through food. They tell the story of cities and the development of cities and the trends and the culture and the history all through the people and the restaurants. True South did an episode in Birmingham a few years back and they profiled Johnny's in Homewood. They profiled the Bright Star in Bessemer not to tell you the best items and how to cook it. That's not what they do in this show, but what they do is is they they tell you the influences and the history of a place like Birmingham through the the Greek influence and immigration that occurred over 100 years ago. And so the last episode was in Dublin, Georgia. And it was a nondescript hamburger joint that's right downtown on the square in Dublin, Georgia. I mean, it's not a place that you're going to see on Southern Living's top 10 restaurants in the state of Georgia. You're not going to find it there. The magazine Garden and Gun is never going to profile this sort of greasy hamburger joint right there in Dublin, Georgia. But as they told the stories, they they told a, a really remarkable story of grace invading the hardness and harshness of our world. You see, the owner of this hamburger place. For decades has employed women who are participants or graduates of the local alcohol and drug program and recovery center that's right on the outskirts of the town. So they're interviewing people that work at this nondescript hamburger place and every one of them has a, has a story of, of hard knocks. They have a story of taking some big steps forward and some big steps backwards. And as I listened to this owner tell her story, it was a story of her sort of kind of as a Mother Teresa of Dublin, Georgia, with grease and hamburgers and fries and just that table and that restaurant that was big enough for people no matter where they've been, no matter what they've done, no matter what they will do in the future. And it was a story that gripped my heart because it was a story that has intersected my life. Now, I've never been to Dublin, Georgia. Some of you know, maybe not all of you, by any stretch of the imagination, though, my middle brother, his name is Michael. And for all of Michael's adult life, he struggled with alcohol and drug abuse. And 10 years ago, he lost that battle in an accidental overdose. And I think back over all of our adult life together and the journey that he had had because he had been through so many of those recovery programs that were profiled in that episode of True South. I I knew those programs. I knew the courageous men and women that, that run those programs and the heart, the heart of love and grace and mercy that they show to people like my brother. And early on, his struggles were things that were so far removed from me. And at times I didn't know how to talk to him. And, and as, as, as we went on in the years and years of life, I began to see that he had a really deep faith, my brother did. They had a real deep anchor 
It's a personal relationship with Jesus. An anchor in the midst of the storm-tossed, destructive patterns of life that so many of our family members and friends travel down. They travel down the road of addiction. And he would take gigantic steps forward. And he would take, at times, humongous steps backwards. The last Thanksgiving that we had together was 10 years ago. We were at my mom's house. Hayden, Luke, and Jonathan are seven, five, two, three. They're young. We're going around the table there and we're asking, what are you thankful for? And so my boys say things like mom and dad. My boys say things like family, food, those kinds of things. And he gets to my brother Michael and he just simply pauses and says, I'm thankful for grace. It's a pretty profound moment. For me, it was a pretty profound moment for my mom. It was interrupted by one of our boys who leans over to Danielle and says, is Uncle Michael dating a girl named Grace? (laughs) And I miss those tables. I think that table is like your table at Thanksgiving. That there are people so vibrant and so full of life that were there, whether it was 10 years ago or 10 months ago. And the hope that I have is a hope that is encapsulated by that one word, grace. And it is a hope that 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 glimpse that we have of the joy of a thanksgiving table is going to be far surpassed by the invitation that we have to the King of Kings and the Lords of Lords table. And I look forward to that day. I look forward to a better day where the host God himself invites us to his table purely by his grace, purely by his mercy, and purely by his love. And I don't know what we're going to be singing in heaven. I don't know if angels we have heard on high is going to make it into the heavenly soundtrack, but I hope, I hope for the sake of being able to sit next to my brother one more time there in heaven for an eternity to come, I hope that we get to sing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. They saved a wretch like me. And I really look forward to to maybe getting past that first stanza and getting to the third stanza and singing out through many dangers, tolls, and snares. I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far. And grace that will lead all of us home. Amen. Let us pray. Thank you for joining us today. To learn more about our family of faith or to learn how to become a follower of Jesus, 